We hear from God's word in Psalm 60, verses 1 to 12. You have rejected us, O God, and burst forth upon us. You have been angry. Now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Save us. And help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph, I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine, and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washbasin. Upon Eden, I toss my sandal. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Eden? Is it not you, O God? You who have rejected us? No longer go out with our armies? Give us aid against the enemy, for the help of man is worthless. But with God, we shall gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. Picking up the pieces. Always after defeat come the recriminations. Not just what went wrong, but instinctively we want to know who was to blame? Whose fault was it? The inquiry to establish who should have prevented the disaster happening. And Psalm 60 was composed on the back of what looks like some kind of catastrophic defeat for Israel's armies. No one knows for sure what happened, though there is no end of theories with varying degrees of plausibility. The heading of the psalm attributes the psalm to David and associates it with the time when Joab defeated 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And 1 Chronicles 18.12 refers to the Edomites being defeated in the Valley of Salt, But the number struck down is 18,000 rather than 12,000 and the victory is won not by Joab but by Joab's brother Abishai. Despite the inconsistencies, that's the closest match you find to the title of the psalm. But it's doubtful that it can help us understand what the psalm is about. The psalm headings were later editions composed to try and give the psalm some sort of context in terms of authorship or events in David's life or in the lives of others. 
In Psalm 60, the idea of conflict with the Edomites may have been enough to suggest a link with the Valley of Salt, but it's not a good correspondence, because on that occasion, David's armies won the battle. But when Psalm 60 was written, the armies of the Lord were licking their wounds after a serious defeat. Something had gone drastically wrong. And this was no mere skirmish. This was a major defeat. They felt as if the land had been ripped apart, smashed open, left quivering and quaking with broken bones and open wounds. What had happened? In a word, God had not shown up to fight for them. No worse than that, it was as if God himself had turned against them and ambushed them in his anger. The people felt as if God had rejected them, turned against them. Instead of being the source of their strength, it was like God had plied them with vast quantities of cheap wine before sending them out into battle. So it was as much as they'd been able to do to stagger out to face the enemy. God had treated them harshly and their situation was desperate. And stunned by their shameful defeat. All they can do is pray that God would would turn his anger away from them and restore them. And yes, they had been defeated. God, you abandoned us, is their cry. But they had not been utterly destroyed. In verses 4 to 5, there's space for them to withdraw, lick their wounds, and find the time to rally again. Verse 4 talks about God raising and unfurling a banner for those who fear him, a place to, to rally the army against the arrows being fired from the enemy bows, a place to regroup, draw fresh strength. Or maybe the banner is flown from the city walls as a signal to warn the farmers and the tradesmen in the surrounding villages to drop their work and make for the walls of the town with their wives and children, hoping they'd get there before the gates closed. Whichever scenario is the right one, the raising of the banner provided a place for for God's people to gather. They were to come together to where the banner was. They were not to be scattered to the four winds. They were not just to be cut down as they fled. There was a place where they would gather together to take a last stand. And it was the place of prayer. The place where they cry out to the Lord, save us. Help us with your right hand. That those whom you love may be delivered. It's a straightforward appeal to God's mercy. They have nowhere else to turn. If you love your people, come and save us. Your right hand is more powerful than our enemies. It is in your power to deliver us. So if you love us, hear our prayer and answer us. And the answer, the oracle, when God speaks to his people from the sanctuary... Sounds a bit like a war cry. 
the Lord will parcel out Shechem and measure the valley of Sukkot, just as if the land were being measured out in order to be allocated to the tribes of Israel after they first conquered the land under Joshua's leadership. There's a map. You can see Shechem on the left and Sukkot to the right in the top right-hand corner of the map, west and east of the River Jordan. They're quite small locations, really, quite specific, quite close to each other. Why do they get mentioned here? One obvious possible inference would be that these were the two areas that had come under enemy control as a result of the military defeat that gave rise to the opening lament of the psalm. Why else would the oracle declare that the Lord would measure them out and parcel them up as a gift to his people? It's a cry of triumph. I'm going to give them back to you. Watch and wait and see what I will do. And the psalm continues with the declaration that Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. And Gilead is the region... Whoops, sorry. Gilead is the region um, above Sukkoth on the eastern side of the River Jordan. And Manasseh is the region north of Shechem, on the western side of the River Jordan. And if Sukkot and Shechem were under enemy control, then the same would be true of the regions north of them. But in this oracle, the Lord says, these areas belong to me. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. I'm claiming them. I'm acknowledging that they are mine. Ephraim, done it again. Ephraim is my helmet, That's the northern kingdom. Judah is my scepter. That's the southern kingdom. It's like God saying that he will use Ephraim and Judah to take these regions back in battle, putting the nations on like pieces of armour. Ephraim is God's helmet. Judah is God's war club, used to strike the enemies down in battle. God will lead his people out in victory to take back what belongs to God again. And the focus shifts to the traditional enemies of God's people as the surrounding nations are taunted and denigrated. Moab. Moab is my wash basin. It's a literal translation. I quite like the suggestion that the insult might be a bit more vulgar than that. Moab is my chamber pot. Might capture it better. Upon Edom... I toss my sandal, I wipe my shoes on Edom. Edom is my doormat. And over Philistia, I shout in triumph. I'm dancing on Philistia's grave. It's not very charitable language, but it is a rallying cry. It's baiting and goading the enemy. And it's all part of the picture of God as the partisan warrior who fights for his people. And and we, we might feel a bit uncomfortable with that kind of language, but God fights for his people. It's part of the picture of who God is. And people puzzle about you know, the, the despair expressed in the in the opening verses of the psalm and the triumphant tone of God's response. There is a a discrepancy there. 
And some people have wondered whether these verses, which contain the oracle of triumph, were the verses that sent the armies of the Lord out to battle in the first place. And this is the people quoting back to God what he said to them. You said you were going to do this, and look what happened. You've let us down. Promises, promises, we say, when we feel someone is promising more than they can deliver. But it's more natural to suppose that these words spoken from the sanctuary come in answer to the people's prayer in verse 5. They pray, save us. Help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. And the answer to this prayer for deliverance when it comes is a war cry, a battle cry. Because the answer to their prayer is not that God will send a squadron of helicopters to evacuate his people and airlift them to safety. God calls for a counterattack. To get up from defeat and go out and fight again and turn things around and trust that this time it will be different. Because you've lost the battle, but you haven't lost the war. But the only way to win the war is to go out and fight the battle again and win this time round. And it's fighting talk because the people need to get up and fight to change their situation. And sometimes when we really find ourselves up against it, we just want God to step in and rescue us and take us somewhere safe where we can lick our wounds in safety and recover, and God says, no. I want you to get up and get back out there again. Your orders are not to run away and hide, but to go and face whatever is confronting you head on. Trusting that because God is with you, you will come out on top. This means looking at God's promises and it's a challenge. When everything seems lost, when all we feel is the sense of defeat, to hear what God says and say, I'm going to take my stand on what God says. Because God does not make empty promises. And because this is the Lord and he is speaking from his sanctuary, I won't base my life on my present circumstances. I won't be governed by my feelings of defeat. I will base my life on his word and so I will go out and take my stand to face whatever comes this coming week. In the closing verses of the psalm, there are a response to this. The response of those who are down, but not out. Can we have them back again, please? The, 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 the outline, thank you. If I am to go out into battle to face the enemy again, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will take me to Edom? And those two questions are answered with the third question that sums up the dilemma of faith when things go wrong. Who's going to do that? It's you, God, isn't it? You're the only one who will do that, but you are the one who rejected us. You are the one who didn't go out with our armies. 
And that's the nub of the problem. God, you are the only one who can lead us. And if you don't lead us, we're lost. And we're in this mess because you rejected us, because you didn't come out and fight with us. So it's a real crisis of faith, and you're left with one of two options. You can throw in the towel, admit defeat, give up, surrender. God abandoned us, rejected us, and everything is lost. Or you can cast yourself upon the mercy of God. And trust that God has said, go out and fight again. And I will give you back what was taken from you. You can take to heart the maxim that defeat only happens to those who refuse to try again. And you can cast yourself upon God's mercy and put your trust in his promise for the future. Impossible though that might seem at the time. And in the event, the psalmist goes for the second option. And that's why the psalm deservedly finds its place in the Psalter. And it ends with a prayer and an expression of confidence. Give us aid against the enemy, for the help of man is worthless. With God, we will gain the victory. And he will trample down our enemies. We have two options. And turning away from the Lord, giving up, And surrendering is one option. But if you turn away from the Lord, there is no one else to take his place. There is no other saviour. It is God or nothing. And so despite the earth-shattering defeat, the psalm expresses a readiness to have another go. And say, God, you weren't there for us last time, but you've promised to be there for us now. So with your help, we will defeat our enemies. And that's what makes this psalm ultimately an expression of courage rather than despair. As Wilfred Peterson put it, to courageously straighten up again after our heads have been bowed by defeat and disappointment and suffering is the supreme test of character. And it's a test of character that the psalmist passes And in so doing, sets us an example to be followed when we encounter defeat in life's battles. And the psalm moves this way and that between a sense of confidence in God and a lack of confidence in God because of what has happened. But there is a progression in it. From lamentation, everything is lost, to to hearing God's word, declaration of victory, to wavering between, you know, can we we believe God because he rejected us? And ultimately, yes, we're going to trust God. Marvin Tate, in his commentary on the Psalms, has a quotation I'm going to leave with you at the end of this sermon. It's familiar to me because I think I may have used it before in a church meeting. He says, um, if I've read Psalm 60 correctly, it belongs to a considerable tradition of prayer in the Old Testament which confronts the divine presence with relentless complaints and petition, divine responsibility for promises made and judgments which threaten those promises. I hardly need to say that these are bold prayers which arise from strong faith. 
They are not for the weak and half-committed. But they belong to the meek who will inherit the earth. Those who are of little stature by worldly standards, but who have the power of prayer. And those words bring a challenge to us as a church. How do we measure ourselves? We measure ourselves by worldly standards. Or do we measure ourselves as those who rely on the power of prayer? Because God is our only hope of salvation. So let's pray. Lord, some of us can identify with what this psalm says about being knocked sideways by defeat or a sense that you've left us or a sense that we find it really, really hard to to trust your promises because of, of the disappointment that we've had in the past. And some of us are still there, not quite sure what to make of what's happened or where to go. And yet with with the Apostle Peter, we say, Lord, who else can we turn to? You have the words of eternal life. There is no other saviour. So help us as we hear your promise to be prepared to stand again at your call to put our trust in you not in our own strength not in our own resources but in you the God who gives his people the victory the God who gives us a second chance, the God who is utterly gracious and faithful, the God who fights for us. So help us, Lord, to turn round, to take our stand, and to face what is coming as those who put their trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.